Hi, my name is Anthony Buzzard. I'm speaking to you from a Bible college in Atlanta. And this tape is dedicated to an examination, I hope a calm and collected examination of the central issue of the Trinity. Who is God in the Bible? Does the Trinitarian idea of God, that he is three persons in one essence, as Hank Hanegraaff says, uh, th one what in three whos, does that really do justice to the biblical view of God? And above all, does it do justice to Jesus' view when he quoted the Shema of Israel in Mark 12, verses 28 and following? And that Shema of Israel, of course, reads as follows. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, as it's translated in the Greek and into the English in the New American Standard Version of Mark 12, verses 28 and following. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. The Lord is one. This is the central tenet, the golden text of Judaism, and it tells us in no uncertain terms that God is a single Lord, one Lord. Now, the view held by so many churches since the church councils, 325 A.D., Nicaea, 451, the Council of Chalcedon, is something, I think, that cannot be reconciled with that Shema, Yisrael, that hero Israel creed of Jesus. And you as a Bible teacher are going to have to explain to the public how it is that apparently churches have not remained faithful to Jesus' central confession about who God is. The history of the Trinity is a pretty messy one, quite honestly. What about these comments from various authorities? Mosheim, the famous church historian, says this in his Institutes of Ecclesiastical History. In the year 317 A.D., a new contention arose in Egypt with consequences of a pernicious nature. The subject of this fatal controversy, which kindled such deplorable divisions throughout the Christian world, was the doctrine of three persons in the Godhead, a doctrine which in the three preceding centuries had happily escaped the vain curiosity of human researchers. That's from Mosheim, his Institutes of Ecclesiastical History, uh, Volume 1, page 399. He wrote that in 1839. And then Andrews Norton, a Harvard theologian of very distinguished honor, I may say, too, in a book called A Statement of Reasons for Not Believing the Doctrine of the Trinitarians Concerning the Nature of God and the Person of Christ, uh, published in 1833, and on page 287 he says this, When we look back through the long ages of the reign of the Trinity, we shall perceive that few doctrines have produced more unmixed evil. Then again, Morris Wiles, in our own time, a late professor of theology at Cambridge University in England, says this, Christological doctrine, that's to say, the discussion of who Christ is in relation to God, Christological doctrine has never in practice been derived simply by way of logical inference from the statements of Scripture. The Church has not usually in practice whatever it may have claimed to be doing in theory based its Christology exclusively on the witness of the New Testament. But I think you and I as students of the Bible will want to be sure that we are basing our Christological statements on the testimony of Scripture and on the actual words of Jesus and the Apostles. Another quotation from Professor G.W. Buchanan. Uh, he wrote to me in 1994 as follows. He said, The Greeks distorted the concept of Jesus' legal agency into ontological identity, identity that is of essence. And in so doing, they created an illogical set of creeds and doctrines to cause confusion and terror for later generations of Christians. I think that's patently true. If we look at the history of uh, Trinitarian dogma, there have been some very unpleasant, ugly episodes in history, notably when John Calvin authorized the judicial murder of Michael Servetus, the young Spanish theologian who questioned the Trinity and paid for that questioning with his life. And so a certain terror and fear surrounds the discussion of this basic issue about who God is, and that's most unfortunate because rational and reasonable discussion cannot happen in an atmosphere of fear. William Barclay, well known for his many books on the Christian faith, says this in a book called A Spiritual Autobiography, 
published by Erdmans in 1975, page 50, nowhere, he says, does the New Testament identify Jesus with God. End of quotation. That's a very striking statement from a very seasoned Bible scholar. And yet in evangelical worlds, in the evangelical world of today, I should say, if one does not declare absolutely flat out that Jesus is God, one is regarded as a hopeless heretic. Not only is one taking oneself to an eternal burning hell, but one is taking everybody else who would follow in that heretical statement that Jesus is not God. And yet Barclay says plainly, the Bible does not identify Jesus with God. And I think we can show in a few moments that that is certainly true. Another quotation from the Oxford Companion to the Bible, published in 1993. And the author of the article on the Trinity says this, because the Trinity is such an important part of later Christian doctrine, it's striking that the term does not appear in the New Testament. Likewise, the developed concept of three co-equal partners in the Godhead, found in later creedal formulations, cannot be clearly detected within the confines of the canon. And those of us who have spent many, many years looking at this issue find that sort of remark very compelling. It cannot be easily detected within the confines of the canon. Then another quotation from Dorner, a famous uh, German Christologist who spent much of his professional life examining the history of dogma. In his famous History of the Development of the Doctrine of the Person of Christ, published by T.T. Clark in 1882, and in Division 1, uh, Volume 2, page 330, he says this, How shall we determine the nature of the distinction between the God who became man and the God who did not become man without destroying the unity of God on the one hand or interfering with Christology on the other? And now this, neither the Council of Nicaea nor the Church Fathers of the 4th century satisfactorily answered these questions. And a quotation from Dorner, I think that's obviously true. If you're going to speak of the God who did not become man and the God who did become man, and you're really forced into that language if you believe in the Trinity, you're going to have to explain not only now to your congregations, but in the Judgment Day also, how it was you were not fragmenting the unity of God, because clearly it sounds very much as though one is speaking of two gods, one who became man and one who didn't. And that contravenes then the central golden tenet of Judaism and of Jesus himself when he said that God is one Lord. It should be obvious that Jesus is not the same person as God his Father. The personal pronouns that Jesus uses make this quite clear. He speaks of we and us when he talks of God and himself. God and Jesus are two individuals, separate, distinct, clearly not the same person, distinct as, as distinct as any two individuals to whom we might refer in our common language. And so Jesus is an I and God is an I. And most ordinary readers of the Bible will see immediately if they pick up uh, and, and peruse the New Testament they'll see that the book is about God and Jesus. It's not about God and God. The book is about God and the Son of God, the Messiah. It's not a book about God and another who is co-equal God. And so it may be fundamentally confusing to your congregation, your circle of Bible students, to force upon them a definition of God which is not actually held by the writers of the Bible itself. This creates a difficulty and confusion right from the very start. And it's not fair on those being asked to read the Bible intelligently to uh, equip them with a theory, indeed to burden them with a theory, which may not have entered the heads of either Jesus or the writers of the New Testament. So these are important issues from the point of view of sound and sane teaching of the Bible and encouraging people to learn the mind of Christ by contact with Scripture. Finally, one more quotation here. I'm reading now from Dogma and Dogmatic Theology in the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 14th edition, 1936, volume 7, 501 and 502. Those are the page numbers. I quote, The adoption of a non-biblical phrase at Nicaea constituted a landmark 
in the growth of the dogma of the Trinity. The Trinity is true since the Church, the universal Church speaking by its bishops, says so, though the Bible does not. We have a formula, but what does that formula contain? No child of the Church dare seek to answer. End of quotation. I think those quotations then from leading authorities writing at different times are enough to show that we have a major problem on our hands trying to discuss the Trinity and at the same time impress our listeners with the fact that it is a genuine biblical doctrine. The problem of the Trinity can be reduced to this. Are there really two lords who are co-equal and co-eternal and are they both then entitled to be called God in the absolute sense? The first fact that strikes us reading the New Testament is that some 1,300 times or more the Greek phrase o-theos, the Greek term o-theos, I'm using modern Greek pronunciation here, meaning the one God, the God absolutely spoken, the God, not for example the God of this world, which is clearly Satan, but the God, that term obviously refers to the Father of Jesus Christ. On a handful of occasions, the word God, Theos, may be referred to Jesus. For uh, on two occasions, certainly, we will, cert we will concede that the term God is used in reference to Jesus. But we must balance that immediately against the evidence of 1,300 texts which use the term Theos, God, used absolutely, to refer to the Father of Jesus Christ. Now, that simple fact surely must be arresting to the logical mind. If, in fact, these writers are trying to tell us that Jesus is fully God, co-equal, co-eternal, uncreated, why in the world is, this, is there this extraordinary disparity in the number of times in which the word atheos is used for God and Jesus? Only a fraction of Bible verses can be cited, a tiny fraction. And each of those, in fact, can be explained on a quite different basis. But the vast majority of uses of the term atheos, meaning God, refer patently to the Father of Jesus. Well, that fact immediately suggests a Unitarian view of God, that God is a single, undifferentiated person, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to me there's a tremendous confusion among students of the Bible about who God is. Some say he's three persons, but when pressed to define the word person, they become vague and hazy and foggy. Some say, nevertheless, he's three persons. Hank Hanegraaff says he's three who's in one what. Some say he's only two, and others maintain that he's strictly one person. Apart from the massive power of tradition, which tends to grip the minds of people, I believe the problem could be solved in a few moments, if we can relax enough, to consider the possibility that the Church may have gone astray in this area of defining God. Here's what I propose as a solution, and of course it's not my solution at all. It's been held by numerous scholars and ordinary Bible readers from long ages. In fact, from the very inception of the doctrine of, Trinity, of the Trinity, there have been dissenters of all sorts who have objected strongly to that formula. If we take Jesus, the rabbi, the savior, as our authority, and Jesus did say, that we do well to call him Rabbi, John 13, 13. Which God did he serve? And which God are we going to serve then as Christian disciples? The answer, I think, is simple and clear. It was never intended to be a vast problem, much less a problem so intractable that even the greatest theological minds could not explain it and ultimately fell back on the idea that it's a mystery, ineffable, and cannot be explained. That sort of problem is not presented by the New Testament at all. We find the answer from Jesus' point of view in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. In verse 29, Jesus answered the question of a scribe, a theologian of the time, by quoting the great foundational text of Israel. The nation had been instructed about who the true God was in contrast to all the polytheistic pagan gods which surrounded them. Hear, O Israel, Jesus recites, 
the Lord our God is one Lord. Kyrios is estin, is one Lord. Mark 12.29, quoted from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Well, the question is then, who is the Lord our God? No question, one Lord. Very simple, one Lord. Now, one Lord is surely one person, not two persons, not three persons. We can prove that this is so. Note first that the theologian, who was commended, by the way, for his intelligence by Jesus in verse 34, affirmed what Jesus had said. In other words, Jesus and the Jewish theologian of the time were on exactly the same page. There was no disagreement at all about the issue of who God was. God is one, Jesus said, and the scribe now confirms this, God is one, and there is no one else besides him. Jesus and the scribes of his day, the theologians of his day, are not talking at cross-purposes. They're, they're in total agreement about who God is. Secondly, note that in verse 36, the discussion turns to another subject, this time about two lords, one of whom is God, and the other is the Messiah, Jesus, according to the common understanding of both Jesus and the rabbis, as they refer to that classic Psalm 110, and particularly verse 1. So now we're talking about two lords. The question is, though, is Jesus to be reckoned as the Lord God? That's the issue. One of those two lords in Psalm 110, verse 1, is the Messiah, Jesus, and one is the Lord God. And so the text reads as follows. The Lord God, Yahweh, said to my, that's David's Lord, the Messiah, Psalm 110.1. But now remember, how many lords make up the one God? Well, Jesus has just told us the Lord our God is one Lord. It's perfectly clear then that God is one Lord, but in verse 36 there are two Lords. Only one of these can be God because God is said to be one Lord in verse 29. That's what Jesus said. The second Lord cannot be God, therefore. Rather, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Messiah. And that's exactly the title given him, Christos Kyrios, the Lord Messiah, in Luke 2, verse 11. It's surprising that there should be any doubt about the Christian creed. Jesus said it plainly. The Lord our God is one Lord. Not the Lord our God is one essence in three persons. A concept really totally foreign to the Jewish mind of Jesus. I think it's time for believers to agree with Jesus about the most important question of all, who God is. He's said to be one Lord. And we could add, of course, that there are simply multiple thousands of singular pronouns used to describe God. It would be hard to imagine how God could have said it otherwise if he wished to convey the idea to us that he's a single undifferentiated personal being. Constantly he speaks of himself as I in the Hebrew Bible 6,700 times the word Yahweh appears with singular verbs, always masculine singular pronouns uh, where the gender is specified of course gender is not always specified in the Hebrew language, in the verbs that's clear but uh, it's certainly true to say that Yahweh is presented as a single person. In addition then, God declares that there is no one else besides him, that he alone is God. Now Jesus clearly echoed these unitary monotheistic statements with complete clarity. The place to search out the issue of who God is in the Bible are those creedal statements where the question of who God is in relation to Jesus is directly addressed. It is very unwise to be pulling isolated texts from contexts where the subject is not directed to defining who God is. Rather, one should go to those creedal statements where the issue of God in relation to Jesus is directly addressed. One of those, of course, is in the famous words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. And here he's discussing precisely the issue of the Christian God Versus, versus all the pagan polytheistic concepts of God. We know, he says, that there are many lords and many gods out there in the pagan world. But to us Christians, Paul said, there is one God, the Father. What a marvelous opportunity for Paul to declare there is one God, 
namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this he does not do in good Jewish fashion, imitating, of course, the example of Jesus in Mark 12, verses 28 and following. Paul declares the unitary monotheism of his heritage, of his Jewish heritage. There is one God, the Father. That's the creed that should be declared to Christian congregations. That's the creed that will make sense of the unity of God throughout Scripture. Now, Paul went on to say, of course, that there is also one Lord, Messiah, one Lord Jesus Christ. But let's be very careful here. He did not say that that one Lord Jesus Christ was Yahweh. He did use the word Lord, and of course we recognize that the word Lord, Kyrios in Greek, has a certain ambiguity about it in the New Testament because it translates the word Yahweh, but it also translates the word Lord as Adon in the Hebrew, and in this particular case, it translates the key word Adoni, my Lord, of Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus then, as reported in the Greek language in Mark 12, uh, 28 and following, is said to have spoken of Kyrios, that's to say Yahweh, speaking to to Kyriomu, to my Lord. The same word Kyrios, having to do service both for Yahweh and that second Lord of Psalm 110.1. Paul then, when he speaks of the Lord Jesus Messiah, is telling us that Jesus is the one Lord Messiah. But you see, the Lord Messiah is not the Lord God. That's demonstrated very clearly in the discussion between Jesus and the scribe when they both uh, settle on Psalm 110, verse 1, as a messianic passage par excellence. And by the way, we know from extra-biblical writings, that's to say writings outside the Bible, that the rabbis of Jesus' time recognized Psalm 110, 1 as a divine oracle uh, designating the position of the Messiah in relation to the one God of Israel. So there's no doubt that the whole New Testament revolves around a discussion of God and Jesus and their relationship in the terms specified by Psalm 110, verse 1. Another remarkable thing is that in that psalm, Yahweh is not confused with the Lord Messiah. It may not be known to you, but the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia in its article on Lord makes it perfectly clear that in the Hebrew text, the pointing on the word Lord, Adon in Hebrew, is specifically designed uh, to make the distinction between God and man. In other words, Adonai, with the uh, affirmative ending there, the intensive ending I on the word Adon, Adonai is the word to describe the Lord God in his unique position. 449 times in the Hebrew text we find Adonai, sometimes in combination with the word Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh, sometimes the other way around, Yahweh Adonai, sometimes simply Adonai. But in every case, the pointing there indicates that the one God is intended by that word Adonai. On the other hand, a different form of pointing for the word Adon, uh, the word is Adoni, with a Hirek vowel, for those of you who know Hebrew, underneath uh, that Yod at the end of uh, A-D-N-Y, giving us a different word, Adoni, and this is exclusively used to designate someone who is not deity, who is not God, who is either a human superior of various types, a husband, let's say, superior, a boss, um, a leader, a king, but someone who's precisely not God. And the word there is Adoni. Well, now, which word occurs in Psalm 110, verse 1? It must be one of the most remarkable phenomena to be found in the history of Christian commentary that some authorities have actually misstated what the word is in Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, we've written to numerous uh, authorities, or several at least, either Bible study notes or commentaries, in which it has been erroneously stated that the word for the Messiah in Psalm 110, 1 is Adonai, now, if that was so, we would have God speaking to God, and we'd have a good basis for intra-Trinitarian relationships in the Godhead from eternity. 
But you see, the word in Psalm 110.1 is not Adonai for the Messiah. It is not Adonai. And there's no question about the pointing. There's no manuscript difference or discussion. No manuscript uh, variations of any sort on this point. The word is Adonai. And it means in all of its 195 occurrences, a human person distinct from God. That is who the Messiah is in terms of the New Testament. He is positively not the one God. That would be to introduce a form of subtle paganism and polytheism into the creed. It would fragment the unity of God. It would demote the one God from his supreme and unique position as having no rivals and also as being solo, unaccompanied at the creation. Isaiah 44.24 says this, I, the Lord, stretched forth the heavens and the earth by myself. No one was with me. No one. Now, that's certainly an extraordinary statement. If, in fact, the Son of God and the Holy Spirit is a third person, if the Son and the Holy Spirit were actively involved in the creation there as distinct persons from the Father, this would be an extraordinary statement for the one God to make. Again, he says that he's unaccompanied, solo, unattended at the creation. Now, the angels there, uh, in Job, I think, 38, verse 6, the, the angels were able to rejoice with God at the creation. But in the act of creating, God was solo. In fact, Hebrews 4, verse 4 says that God rested after his labor of creation. God. And the word God in the book of Hebrews doesn't mean Jesus. Clearly, the reference is to the Father. So the whole notion, then, that has arisen in post-biblical times about Jesus actually being the creator, the agent of creation in Genesis 1, needs to be thoroughly re-examined. But now we were talking about the necessity of testing these views uh, by examination of the directly creedal statements of the New Testament. We discussed then uh, Paul's famous uh, creedal statement in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, where he plainly says that there's no God besides the one God, and that one God is the Father. He goes on, of course, then to speak of the unique position of the one Lord Messiah. But that is the one Lord Messiah, and Lord should be understood then in terms of Psalm 110, verse 1. And I may just add that that particular text is quoted from the Old Testament in the New more than any other single verse. It has a simply massive importance for this discussion of who God is and who Jesus is in the Bible. If we then look at Jesus' own creedal statements elsewhere in the Gospels, we could, would not look very far before we arrived at John 17.3. It's a fact that when Jesus prayed, he prayed aloud sometimes, and he was not afraid to rehearse his theology in public and in prayer. And so John 17.3, Jesus, looking up to heaven, says, You, Father, are the only one who is truly God. In Greek, omonos, alethinos, theos, the only genuine, authentic God, the only one who is in the category of authentic, true God. Now, that is plainly a unitary, unitary monotheist, monotheistic statement, very Jewish, entirely in line with the Jewish heritage which Jesus elsewhere subscribed to. He says that we know who we worship. We Jews do. And salvation is of the Jews and so on. There was never any question in Jesus' mind that the God of Israel was his God also. It's a position to which we need to return with all urgency, lest we corrupt the text of Scripture and make Jesus say something he never said. To ascribe to Jesus a Trinitarian view of God is a considerable anachronism. Jesus had never heard of such a thing as the Trinity, or if he had, he had rejected it and never spoke of it. It's time then for Christians to be armed with the right biblical text to show that God is a single person. John 17.3 will do this well for us. You, Father, are in the category of the one who is alone the true God. And alongside that one and only true God, Jesus places himself. But notice that he does not place himself within the category of the only true God. This is the meaning, he says, of eternal life, the life of the coming age of the kingdom. This is the meaning of eternal life, 
that they may come to know you, Father, the one who is the only true God, and Jesus, Messiah, and there he puts himself in the correct category, Jesus, the Messiah, the one whom you commissioned, the agent, the representative of the one God, but not the one God himself. In other words, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Not God was Christ, or Christ was God. That is to overread the text of Scripture, and it's a mistake that needs to be stopped. It's a poor habit. It's a confusing technique. And when it's accompanied by all sorts of threats of heresy or expulsion from the church, things only go from bad to worse. Jesus, therefore, declares himself to be in the proper tradition of Israel as subscribing to belief in the one who alone is truly God. And his claim, of course, is immense. He claims to be the unique Messiah, the Son of God. That's the Christological confession of Peter in Matthew 16, 16. And it's the confession on which Jesus promised to build his church, on the confession that he is the Messiah, not the confession that he is God. And there's a very great difference in those two categories. Again, if we look at Christological plain statements in the New Testament, we find Paul saying in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Anthropos, the man, that is, Christos Jesus, Christ Jesus. You'll notice that as Paul develops his uh, Christological writings, as he becomes more and more mature in his writings, he tends to place the word Messiah ahead of the word Jesus, lest we should ever imagine that Christ is simply a family name and of no particular meaning. On the contrary, Paul says, Messiah Jesus, and in this particular passage, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, he says, the man, putting it in emphatic position, the man, Messiah Jesus in contrast to the one God who is clearly the Father. Now that is a determinative statement, definitive, final, and absolute, and should be declared with ringing authority in all Bible study groups because we have a long way to correct, a long way to go, and a lot of tradition to overcome if we are to get back to the text of Scripture in some of these most basic issues. Having said that, then, you may wonder how did the Church come to redefine Jewish monotheism in terms of the Trinity. Well, it's a long and torturous story. A very interesting book written on this subject is entitled When Jesus Became God by a gentleman called Rubenstein. And it's a historical book. It, it, that's to say it describes the history of the development of the dogma of the Trinity when Jesus became God, published within very recent years. And it's an excellent read. The author is a professor of conflict at Harvard University, and his job is to look at conflict in history and to describe it and analyze it. And surely this conflict that developed over the period of time in which the Trinity was being worked out is one of the most signal examples of human conflict ever. And the argument, as you know, was between those who subscribed to the traditional view that Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal, uncreated Son of God, and those who said, no, Jesus must have had a beginning. To be begotten in itself means that you have a beginning. You must be generated in time. Well, the argument was finally settled in a most unsatisfactory way and with the force of law backing it at the councils of Nicaea 325 and Chalcedon 451 with the intervening council in 381 at uh, Constantinople. And thus then the Trinity was written into stone, and ever after those who did not subscribe to it, could not subscribe to it, were regarded as dangerously heretical. And so it has remained to a large extent to the... One would think on any sensible uh, definition of words, any sensible use of language, that John 17:3, you Father are the only one who is truly God, you are the only true God, that this would settle forever any question about who God is. However, Augustine, the church father, famous uh, church writer, and others of the early church fathers 
was forced into an extraordinary position when confronted with this text. At the center of Christianity, as we've seen then, is the Gospel of John with its confessional statement which deserves our attention. In that solemn prayer, Jesus addresses his Father and defines the precise language of a creedal formula, the essence of the Christian faith. Father, he says, life eternal, the life of the age to come, consists in this, that they should know you, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus the Messiah. John 17, verse 3. And so in Jesus' mind, the Father is the only true God. In recognizing that fact and acknowledging Jesus as Messiah, eternal life is to be found. How many 20th century churchgoers are able to concur wholeheartedly in Jesus' own definition of the Godhead and the faith? Could it be that traditional creeds have actually led to a belief which is subtly but radically different from the one declared by Jesus himself? Two fundamentally important truths emerge from Jesus' words. Firstly, it is the Father alone who is the only true God. Secondly, Jesus is the Messiah, and he is distinct from the only true God, though clearly in the closest association with him. In John 5.44, Jesus had spoken again of him who alone is God. The New English Bible has him who alone is God, referring to the Father. In our text here in John 17.3, Jesus bestows upon believers a definition of the Godhead which any Jew will recognize as strictly monotheistic, confining absolute deity to the one person, only the Father. Now, Jesus, and of course a Jew would not agree with this, but we Christians subscribe to this wholeheartedly, Jesus is to be regarded as the Messiah, but his Father is the only true God. It will be clear to the thoughtful reader that the terms of this confession are scarcely compatible with the definition of Jesus as the one and only true God, by which the Son, then, is held to be as fully the one true God as the Father. If you submit John 17.3 to the ordinary reader, or lawyer, theologian, or language specialist, the obvious distinction between the one person in one God of this verse and the three persons in one God of the post-biblical creeds will emerge immediately. The message of the Johannine Creed can be seen in even sharper relief when we consider the problems which John 17.3 caused post-New Testament commentators. They really had a hard time with this verse, as we're going to see. By that time, in post-biblical uh, eras, uh, these writers had inherited a Nicene and Chalcedonian definition of the Godhead as three persons in one God. The 5th century church father, Augustine of Hippo, clearly did not think that John 17.3 could be reconciled with his understanding of the Godhead as three co-equal, co-eternal persons in the one God. He therefore felt compelled to restructure the Greek text of this verse to accommodate his views. This may be amazing to you, but it remains a fact to be easily checked in any theological library. But Augustine said this about John 17.3. He says it really should read as follows. This is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ as the only true God. Augustine's commentary on John 17.3 reveals the arbitrary manner in which Scripture was dragooned, bludgeoned, gerrymandered, forced into line with tradition. He says, the proper order of the words is, and I'm quoting here from Augustine, the proper order of the words is that they may know you and Jesus Christ as the only true God. Now, this reworked version of the biblical text, bearing as it obviously does a quite different sense, has been in turn an embarrassment to later commentators. The minute exegesis of the British 19th century expositor Henry Alford has won the highest acclaim amongst evangelicals. In his celebrated Greek Testament, he describes the Augustinian twist of John 17.3 as, and I quote, of course inadmissible. And he refers to two other commentators, Chrysostom and Euthymius, 
who also regarded Jesus Christ as included in the phrase only true God. Alford continues, quote, But all such violences to the text are unnecessary. And I myself would have used, I think, a strong, stronger word even than violence. Alford himself does not, however, scruple, he says, to preach on this verse as a plain proof of the co-equality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Godhead. Well, it's pretty difficult to understand how he can reject Augustine's violence to the text, but himself arrive nevertheless at Augustine's duality in the Godhead. Jesus Christ does not allow the sacred precinct of the Father, the only true God, to be invaded by anyone, even the Son himself. John 17.3 must be taken as a master key to the New Testament definition of the Godhead. It is Jesus' own creed, and therefore must be the creed of his followers. A distinguished German scholar of the 19th century, Heinrich Meyer, author of the celebrated commentary on the New Testament, notes also that six well-known commentators in earlier times were driven to rearrange the words of John 17.3 under the strain of having to include Jesus Christ in the one true God. Meyer describes this as, and I quote, a perversion of the passage and running counter to the strict monotheism of John. End of quote. While attempting to uphold the traditional creed, however, Meyer admits that, and I quote, only one, the Father, can absolutely be termed the only true God, although Jesus, in unity with the Father, works as his commissioner and is his representative. And, of course, that is perfectly true. That's the end of the quotation there. Jesus works as his commissioner and is his representative. Indeed, Jesus is the shaliach, the ambassador, the one commissioned, the one sent, the plenipotentiary, the representative of the one God, his Father. Maya also states that John 17.3 is a summary of faith in opposition to all forms of polytheism, of paganism, that is. This will serve to underline the crucial importance of Jesus' statement to seekers after the Christianity of the Bible. One can only agree with this part of Meyer's plain comments on John 17.3, and I remain baffled that so few seem willing to admit that this text is devastating to popular notions about a Godhead consisting of three co-equal, co-eternal persons. The only true God, according to Jesus, is one person, the Father, not three persons. Are students of the Bible ready to acknowledge with John and Jesus that only one, the Father, can be termed absolutely the only true God? If this sounds heretical, it may well be time for all of us to become heretics with Jesus and John. To say nothing of Paul, who equally defines the one God, as we've seen, as the Father, as distinct from Jesus, the Lord Messiah. 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. Now, a contemporary Roman Catholic scholar, or late uh, scholar of the Roman Catholic Church, Raymond E. Brown, grapples with the question as to whether the Bible ever calls Jesus God, and admits that in Roman Catholic treatments of our subject, a number of texts in the Bible are, he says, and I quote, often somewhat neglected. That's from his book, Jesus, God, and Man, page 6. He refers to many verses which show clearly that, quote, while Jesus was associated with God and was called Lord and Mediator, there was a strong tendency to reserve the title God to the Father, who is the only true God. End of quotation from the same book, page 9. Now, it's only fair to ask whether contemporary Christianity continues to reflect faithfully this, what Raymond Brown calls, strong tendency, apparent in its source book, the Bible, the strong tendency to reserve the word God for the Father. Why are we so often told that the Church has always believed that Jesus is as fully the only true God as his Father, does the average churchgoer know that in over 1,300 instances the Father is called God, or Theos, as distinct from Jesus, his Son? In a refreshingly candid examination of the biblical evidence, and I may say that Roman Catholic scholars are very good uh, when it comes to their analysis of the Bible, often very good in that respect, Raymond Brown points out that Jesus was, according to Peter in the book of Acts, I quote, a man attested by God, Acts 2, 22, end of quote. 
God preached to Israel through him, Peter says in Acts 10.36. He was the prophet destined to be born amongst the people of Israel as foretold by Deuteronomy 18.15-18. to 18. And that very, very important Christological text in Deuteronomy 18.15-18 to 18, is quoted by the apostles, in fact by Peter in Acts 3.22, and by Stephen in the sermon that cost him his life in Acts 7.37. Jesus answers the man who addressed him as good teacher by asking, Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one God. Mark 10.18, Luke 18.19. It's an extraordinary thing if Jesus is trying to impress upon the questioner that he is fully God. Why does he say, why do you call me good in the absolute sense? There's only one who is absolutely good. That's very Jewish, and it's entirely in line with his creedal statement in John 17.3. In Ephesians 1.17, the Father is called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, a phrase which Brown concedes, and I quote, makes it very difficult to think that the author designated Jesus as God. Yes, indeed. End of quotation. Very difficult indeed to imagine a New Testament writer saying that Jesus is God in the absolute sense. And yet, paradoxically today, if you even question that proposition, you're likely to be regarded as beyond the pale and fit only for an eternal uh, Christless uh, suffering in hell. This is a situation which needs to be rectified as soon as we can. Brown then goes on to deal with a handful of texts, some of which definitely use the term God to refer to Jesus. In only one case, 1 John 5.20, does Brown reach conclusions which would be contested by a mass of expert commentators. His frank study leaves us wondering how the very, very few verses which may or may not call Jesus God, the syntax of the Greek is ambiguous, as you know in many cases, and the two which definitely do call Jesus God, how these two could possibly provide a solid basis for the later doctrine of the Trinity. In the Roman Catholic tradition, Brown is careful to note that Jesus' status as co-equal God with the Father was in any case settled for the Church by the Council of Nicaea and is for that reason not open to question. What, however, if the Council of Nicaea settled the matter against the evidence of the Bible, as many commentators have felt. It remains a rather interesting fact that while evangelicals claim sola scriptura, the Bible is my only source and authority, while they claim that, often they are unwittingly victims of exactly the same traditions that they deplore in the Roman Catholic system. It's time for evangelicals to look carefully and to distinguish carefully between what actually is tradition handed down through the church and what is really uh, essentially sola scriptura. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, in correspondence with me, made an interesting observation when he said that many evangelicals, while claiming to have sola scriptura as the basis of their theology, are in fact in subjection to tradition just as much as the Roman Catholics whom they criticize. The absolute and unique deity of the Father alone is established, I think, unequivocally in Scripture in a number of fundamentally important New Testament texts, as also, of course, massively by the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, as we've said, provides us with a clear Christian creed and, like John 17, 3, does not include Jesus within the terms one God. There's no God except one, Paul says, to us Christians as one God the Father, as opposed to the multiple gods of paganism, and one Lord Jesus, Messiah. Similarly, Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, distinguishes the one Lord Jesus from the one God and Father of us all, who is above all. One God and Father of us all, who is above all. And finally, in 1 Timothy 2, 5, where we may expect Paul's most developed Christology, Paul seems to be working deliberately against the belief that Jesus is to be reckoned as the one God. And here he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Messiah Jesus 
himself man. End of quotation. It is the same Christ who, after reigning in the kingdom of God, will ultimately, quote, deliver up the kingdom to God the Father and be subjected to him who put all things under him so that God may be everything to everyone. This, of course, is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 28. Now, it's a remarkable thing that even after Jesus has subjected the kingdom, and, of course, at that time Jesus will have won the world for himself during the millennial kingdom and handed it over to the Father at the end of that thousand-year period, even then Jesus is subject to God. That surely must prove to any open-minded observer and investigator that Jesus cannot be co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. In the face of this overwhelming evidence, drawn from passages which plainly represent the New Testament's own creed, you may well agree with Arthur Wainwright in his famous study, The Trinity in the New Testament, that according to the text we have cited, quote, God was regarded as one, and the one God was believed to be the Father. He adds that texts of this nature, he assembles 15 such texts, such verses, quote, hardly seem to provide fruitful ground for the growth of a doctrine of the Trinity. That's from his book, The Trinity in the New Testament, page 42. His conclusion is a striking example of British understatement. As a basis for the Trinity, these 15 verses must be seen as barren soil. They positively exclude the possibility of adding a second person to the unique Godhead of the Father. The, quote, problem of the Trinity, to use Wainwright's phrase, is created only when John 17, 3 and its companion creedal statements are set aside and attempts are made to speak of the divine function of Jesus as Messiah, which is a biblical idea, as though this means that Jesus possessed co-equal and co-eternal deity with the Father. Such reasoning, however, contradicts the New Testament flatly. It contradicts the New Testament creed of John 17, 3, John 5, 44, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, Ephesians 4, 6, 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 Timothy 1.17, Jude 25, and also James 2.19 and 4.12. These verses carefully preserve the attribute of supreme deity for the Father of Jesus alone. It is only by eliminating the witness of these critical verses that a Trinitarian problem can be raised with all of the awful consequences of the arguments that ensued when the Bible had been abandoned, when the creed of Jesus had been abandoned in post-biblical times, under the influence, of course, of Greek philosophy, which was very much prevalent in the Church at that time. Now, none of what we said on this tape is intended to deny for one moment that Jesus perfectly represents his Father, the one true God. Our contention is simply that the churches have inherited a creed grown in the soil of post-biblical Greek speculation about Jesus' relationship to God. We might add that the earliest church fathers were not Trinitarians. Tertullian, for example, says there was a time when, the, when God was not the Father and there was no Son. Tertullian, as well as Arius, declared that the Son came into being, was generated sometime just before Genesis, but not that he was co-equal and co-eternal. It's only when we arrive at a region that we're learning to think in terms of this inscrutable phrase, eternal generation, an act which was going on eternally, generation. Surely an extraordinary confusion of terminology and one that should be quickly dropped from our vocabulary lest we use language in such a way as to render it totally bankrupt. There's no such thing as eternal generation in the Bible. The generation of the Son happened in history in the womb of his mother Mary, according to Luke 1, verse 35, and Acts 13, 33, where Paul speaks first of the production of the Son, in verse 33, and in verse 34 only of his resurrection. But in verse 33, Paul quotes the begetting of the Son text from Psalm 2, the messianic begetting of the Son, in relation to the arrival on the scene of history of the Son of Jesus. There's no Son of God, in other words, pre-existing the event that was described in Luke 135. 
In Matthew 1, verse 20, we'll find the begetting of the Son is what happens when God intervenes in the biological chain to create the second uh, Adam, the Son of God. A very fine article, by the way, by a distinguished systematic theologian from Fuller, uh, Colin Brown, in his article in the ex Audit II magazine or journal of 1991. And he says the following thing. As an expert biblical uh, exegete, to be called son of God in the Bible means you are not God. And secondly, to read John 1.1 as though it means that in the beginning was the son is patently wrong. John did not write in the beginning was the son. John, therefore, did not create the Trinitarian problem. What he wrote was in the beginning was the word with a small w quite uh, wrongly given a, a capital W in the interests of dogma by many translations. But in the beginning was God's word, his self-expression. In the beginning, J.B. Phillips translates, in the beginning God expressed himself. God planned his strategy. And that strategy then became embodied in a human being, Mr. Word, Mr. Wisdom, the human being, Jesus Christ, exhibiting, demonstrating the very wisdom and word of God in fullest, fullest measure, because indeed he received the Spirit in fullest measure. So word and Spirit are closely linked in Scripture, as we find in Proverbs 1.23, I will pour out my Spirit upon you, I'll make my mind, my heart, my innermost personality, my innermost secrets known to you through the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, which is carried in the words of Jesus. The words that I speak to you, he said in John 6.63, the words that I speak to you are, in fact, spirit and truth. They are carriers of the divine mind. Spirit and mind, heart, uh, wisdom, uh, are all closely related concepts in Scripture, all of which becomes very obscure when we define the spirit as a third person in the sense that Father and Son are clearly distinct and separate persons. So none of what we've said on this tape is intended to deny for one moment that Jesus perfectly represents his Father, the one true God. Our contention is simply that the churches have inherited a creed grown in the soil of post-biblical Greek speculation about Jesus' relationship to God. Well, Canon Good spoke when he said that when the Hebrew mind was dropped in favor of the Greek and Roman mind by the church fathers, there occurred a disaster in faith, practice, and doctrine from which we have never recovered. And so this tape then is a very small effort, a small contribution to what we see as the need for recovery from that disaster when the paganizing Greek Hellenistic mind of the church fathers muddled and confused uh, biblical theology. It seems to us unfair to place in the hands of a convert a Bible and tell him that that's what we, the church, teach when clearly in many areas the Bible has been rejected in favor of post-biblical tradition. If close attention, we'll say finally, had been paid to John 17.3, the Trinitarian, quote, problem could have been nipped in the bud. Some theologians seem determined to picture the apostles as struggling to become Trinitarians. Others, happily, have abandoned that fight, and they're content to see Jesus in the light of the Bible as the perfect vehicle for the activity of the one God, his Father. It's reasonable that we allow Christianity's founder the right to formulate the Christian confession, that we acknowledge the Father as the only true God, the one who alone is truly God, the only one who is truly God, John 17:3, the one who alone is God, John 5:44, and then that we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, John 17:3. And we'll finish with this point. John wrote his whole gospel to try to persuade us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. John 20, verse 31. You have been listening to Focus on the Kingdom. Sir Anthony Buzzard has written a book entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. For this book and other free literature, contact us at Atlanta Bible College. Box 100,000, Morrow, Georgia, 30260. That's Atlanta Bible College, Box 100,000, Morrow, Georgia, 30260. Or you may call 
1-800-347-4261. That's 1-800-347-4261. You can email us at anthonybuzzard at mindspring.com and visit our webpage at www.focusonthekingdom.org where a complete series of these programs is available. Join us again for our continuing discussion of the Christian gospel of the kingdom as Jesus preached it.